0: to most of us, our our regular residential philosopher, and we're very grateful that he tackles these big issues and reads copious books by atheists and others, and shows very simply what the truth lies. So thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much. So I've uh, got the phrase, I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, And to give myself a chance at addressing it in 20 minutes, I thought I'd take a particular angle. And fortunately for me, Richard Dawkins brought out an anniversary edition of his book, The God Delusion, with a new introduction, uh, focusing on him uh, defending uh, himself uh, against the uh, critics... uh, views upon the original book, and particularly over his main argument uh, about whether or not it's reasonable to believe in God. So I thought I would uh, tackle Dawkins' most recent defense against his critics uh, of the God delusion. Dawkins uh, starts off in that new introduction by talking about the God temptation. Uh, The the temptation is the, the temptation, he says, to evade by invoking a designer the responsibility to explain the world. The God temptation, really. I mean, if there is a designer, then clearly to appeal to design, to explain the world, is to offer a true explanation for things that would advance our knowledge. What this shows, I think, really, is is Dawkins' bias against the very concept. He's really... Begging the question, and we'll see this again in his work, he's begging the question against design being the true answer and explanation of things. He talks about the design problem, well, from his point of view, the problem. He says, you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity, complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. He says that complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction. This is a very important key point. Statistical improbability in a non-random direction, i.e. the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. The direction of achieving a purpose or a function. So in other words, we could say that Dawkins here acknowledges that what uh, intelligent design theorists would call specified complexity uh, is a plausible indicator of design, this complexity in the direction of achieving a function. He, uh, in an uh, op-ed in a Free Inquiry magazine a number of years ago, Dawkins himself used the language of specified complexity, and he said that this idea of specified complexity takes care of a very sensible point uh, that the, uh, in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts, as we see here, tossed in a box, is improbable, it's just as improbable, as a fully functioning, what he calls here, genuinely complicated watch. What's specified about a watch, but not about a pile of detached watch parts, is that it is improbable, in the specific direction of telling the time, rather than just being a jumble of parts that's not achieving a function. So he has endorsed before this language and this concept of uh, specified complexity being something that raises uh, a plausible need for explanation. (coughs) Well, as William Lane Craig uh, says, uh, laying out this idea of specified complexity... The idea here is that in in addition to to high improbability or complexity, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern, a specification, a pattern. When these two elements are present, we have specified complexity rather than just mere complexity, which is the tip-off to design. And He gives this friendly example. Thus, for example, in a poker game, uh, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals the cards out, he ends up getting all four aces, (laughs) you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. Uh, So Dawkins talks about the idea that every animal, he says, embodies a statistical complexity of detail, i.e., every animal exhibits improbability in a non random direction, that is, specified complexity. This is at the uh, level of the organic design problem, you might say. He says the complexity, specified complexity, of the living body, indeed of every one of its trillion cells, is so mind shattering to anyone who truly grasps it that the temptation, the temptation to buckle at the knees, and succumb to a non-explanation design is almost overwhelming. And then there's also the cosmic design or problem. He says the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which eyes and peacocks and humans and their brains and so on can, or he says will, come into existence. So he even says this, this is fascinating, he says, it's almost as though you have to have faith that it really is only a trick. Faith that nothing supernatural has happened. (laughs) As Dawkins asserted in the first edition of The God Delusion, he says, the problem with this temptation, this problem, is that God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the entities he's supposed to explain. And that's why he thinks it's a bad idea to appeal to God, to invoke design in order to explain this specified complexity. And he says that this argument remains intact and inescapably devastating despite the criticisms that have been lodged uh, towards it. The designer himself, he says, in order to be capable of designing would have to be another complex entity of that kind which in his turn needs the same kind of explanation. In other words, if you explain the existence of anything with reference to the existence of some other thing that also needs an explanation then you produce an an explanatory regress. Well, of course you do, but what's the problem here? It's as if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. Really? Do we not make an explanatory advance if we explain this complex portrait in terms of the yet more complex Rembrandt who painted it? Seems that we do make an explanatory advance there. As William N. Craig says, uh, in order for the explanation of something to be the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Such a requirement, indeed, would generate an infinite regress, an explanatory regress, so that everything becomes inexplicable. But perhaps Dawkins is confusing an explanatory regress with an infinite explanatory regress here. Well, I'd agree that an infinite explanatory regress is to be avoided. But I'd point out that while explaining A by reference to B doesn't entail an infinite regress, the assumption that for an explanation to be the best explanation, etc., does entail an infinite regress. But perhaps his use of the word suffice is important. Perhaps that indicates the thought that no explanation that's complex in the sense of being unlikely and thus contingent can suffice as an ultimate explanation for something. Well, again, I'd agree, but I'd note that while Dawkins has thereby unwittingly endorsed not only the design argument but also a version of the cosmological argument, he actually makes the question-begging assumption that God can't be a necessary being rather than a contingent being. He says critics of my book grasping at straws they try to deny that a God capable of designing something complex and thus contingent must himself be complex and thus contingent. A God capable of designing something complex, and I've put in his definition there must himself be complex in the very same definitional sense, he says, as if uh, God were like this magnetic create-your-own-deity fridge magnet set uh, that I've bought for illustrating purposes tonight with uh, various bits that you can move around and make more or less complicated pictures of the deity of your choice. He says, a God capable of designing something complex must himself be complex. Richard Swinburne, British philosopher, asks, and why does he think this? He doesn't say. Well, in this introduction, Dawkins says God has to be clever enough to calculate the values of those physical constants that would fine-tune the universe. You call that simple... God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. He must be almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing. The one thing he can't be, to match up to the job description, is simple, says Dawkins. But this is to completely misunderstand Swinburne's and theology's definition of simplicity. So Dawkins quotes Swinburne uh, as theism postulates for its one cause, a person with infinite power, infinite knowledge, and infinite freedom. Dawkins then commenting on that, writes, God is simple for Swinburne because there is only one of him. Yet that one God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers, etc., etc. He's missed the point about infinite values. As Swinburne explains, the point isn't just that there's one God, but that that God doesn't just have some power, but all power, and so on. (coughs) Swinburne argues that that's metaphysically simpler than an explanation framed with reference to something that has a certain amount of power, but not all of it. So why does it have that much and not a bit more, or a bit less? A person couldn't be a person with zero degrees of power, etc., But to suppose a finite limit to those qualities is less simple than to suppose no limit, says Swinburne. And to suppose infinite degrees of those qualities bound together eternally is to postulate the simplest kind of personal cause that you can have. J. Wesley Richards, writing on the doctrine of simplicity, notes that it's the claim that God is not made of parts, pointing to the fridge magnets again. God is not a composite of parts in the sense of being made up of elements or properties, each of which is more fundamental than God himself. That claim doesn't entail the claim that God doesn't have distinguishable properties or that God isn't a trinity, to go back to uh, Mike's topic there. Uh, The agnostic philosopher, in discussion uh, with Rowan Williams and Richard Dawkins, recently distinguished complexity of structure from complexity of function. And he gave this example of the electric razor and the cutthroat razor. And Kenny said, look, the electric razor can only be used to cut a beard. But the cutthroat razor might also be used to cut someone's throat. So it can do more things, even though it's a simpler object to which Dawkins replied "Uh, this this demonstrates that the the complexity of the function of the things that a thing can do doesn't demonstrate that it has a complexity of structure the two are distinguishable Dawkins replied I really don't see what you're saying (laughs) that was it Um, well what he's saying is as the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel points out on, on the same issue he says God, if there was one God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world made up of parts and complicated in that statistical contingent structure sense I mean must God be complex in that sense that Dawkins means when he's talking about design rather than simple in the, t- in the sense defined by Swinburne at Hell. None of Dawkins' observations about God listening to all of those prayers at the same time and so on is an argument showing that to fulfil his job description God must be complex and not simple in the relevant sense. Dawkins equivocates over the terms complex and simple in order to beg the question against God being a simple necessary being. A book called The Created God Delusion or The Contingent God Delusion would not have sold as many copies as John Lennox points out. Talking about the multiverse, Dawkins appeals to the multiverse to get around the fine-tuning cosmic design problem. That there are billions of universes having different laws and we just happen, of course, to find ourselves in one that we're compatible with. Dawkins' objection to the fine-tuning design argument, in other words, runs like this. If there were enough different universes, all of which were different, then the the specified fine-tuning of our universe would not, in fact, be complex, wouldn't be unlikely enough to hit that joint specified complexity detector of design. Premise two, there are enough different universes, all with different laws and constants. Conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning doesn't justify a design inference. You see premise two flashing away there because he does nothing to justify the truth of that premise. It's not enough to say, well, if this hypothesis were true, your argument wouldn't work. That's not an objection to the argument. He has to show that the hypothesis is true. I mean, if X number of chimps existed with enough typewriters, then they could have produced the complete works of Shakespeare by chance. But looking at a volume of the complete works of Shakespeare, very few of us in this room would leap to the conclusion that there must be a heck of a lot of chimpanzees somewhere with a lot of typewriters because we have no independent evidence that there are enough chimpanzees and enough typewriters in the first place. We quite reasonably ignore the many chimps hypothesis for the one author hypothesis, and we should do the same in terms of our universe. As the theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli, uh, author of the recent bestseller Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, puts it, I see no reason for rejecting a priori, the idea that there's more in nature than the portion of space-time that we see but I haven't seen any convincing evidence so far. Or Brian Green, another theoretical physicist, says people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Or a recent article in New Scientist from the other week, uh, Stuart Clark and Richard Webb, talk about the difficulty in multiverse hypotheses is how you get convincing evidence for the existence of any of them. And they also note that by allowing every possibility beside the one you're probing to play out somewhere in the multiverse, because everything's going to happen somewhere, science robs itself of its predictive power. Because your your hypotheses are going to be consistent with the evidence somewhere in the multiverse, also, Bill Craig points out that the odds of a small area of space capable of sustaining our kind of life, just coming into existence randomly from the quantum vacuum, the odds of that happening are much, much lower uh, than the odds of such a large universe as we see coming into existence. So if we were a random member of the multiverse, the odds are that we'd be seeing a much smaller region of habitable space than we do see. And so this is observational evidence against the multiverse theory. Agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis also notes that multiverse theories, even if you were going to take that as read, merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. There has to be some sort of finely tuned universe-generating mechanism The multiverse theory can't provide a complete and final explanation. Why a mechanism that produces universes that are all different, rather than repeatedly spitting out universes that are identical but lifeless, for example. There has to be fine-tuning at that level, even if you kick it up to that level. So, Dawkins' attempted rebuttal of the design argument does not, I think, remain intact. Uh, having been subjected to, I think, inescapably devastating criticisms, his replies to them shows that he simply hasn't understood the replies to his uh, initial argument. And so I think that the apprehension of design that many people have at an intuitive level, I think that can be cashed out at quite a rigorous philosophical and scientific level, and remains a good reason to believe that there is some kind of creator of heaven and earth. Thank you.